Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at Matthew 11, verse 16 to 24. The message is entitled, The Sin of Unbelief. Jesus has been preaching and doing all kinds of miracles, healing people, delivering demons, all kinds of stuff. And yet, for the most part, he's been received with much opposition and unbelief to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus declared a sharp rebuke to the faithless generation here in these verses. Let me read to you here. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling on their companions and saying, We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourn to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. He then began to rebuke the cities in which most of the mighty miracles and works were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Zion, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you and you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been uh, remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I want you to consider who's saying these words. Jesus, the one who loves the world and died for sinners. Jesus, meek and mild. Today, too many people, when you say something that's judgmental or negative, they say, well, I can't believe in a God like that. You must not believe in Jesus. You, not, you must not believe in the first words that God told Adam. He says, don't eat of that tree. You see, there are many negative commands that have been given to you as you've been growing up in your parents' home that have protected you if you've obeyed them. Therefore, you're good. If you disobey them, you receive the consequences of those actions. And so, love always warns before the consequences come. Because the motive is to protect, not to destroy And so each generation has a background, a culture in which they are receiving the message from the gospel. Our generation is a very ungodly generation, a very unbelieving generation, much like this right here. Generations come and go. Some generations are more respectful than others, more spiritual than others, more civil than others. But the gospel is always a mirror that reveals the sinfulness of man, regardless of the level of society. This just shows a darker side of society. Notice first the picture of the fickle people comes in verse 16 and 17. The character of the people is identified in 16, but to you, uh, to what shall I liken this generation? He says, I will liken children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions. Jesus turned here to their character. Um, 
He's been talking about John, and now he makes a transition to the people. John is a prophet. Verse 13 through 14 is said before this. And they disbelieve him. They are not prophets. In fact, they don't listen to the prophets. They are people of unbelief. The words that he says to them, they're not um, mild words. He gives them a little parable. He says, but what I say, I liken this generation. And he makes the parable to them. A parable, you know, is peril alongside and boldly to throw. Taking something you do know, put it next to what you don't know. So knowing what you do know, you'll know what you don't know. That's what a parable is. Okay? Something common of the day. And you understand this, but you don't understand what he's saying. Put it right next to it. And what you get this, you'll get that. A sower went out to sow seed, scatter seed. The seed is the word of God. And they understand the parallel teaching and the light comes on. Parabolic teaching was to illuminate, to open understanding, not to conceal it. People were so used to the regular words that Jesus moves into parabolic teaching to try to motivate them to try to capture it and in trying to figure it out, it might illuminate them. But the problem is the heart, as we'll see here. Jesus gives notice the correct answer. They were like little children entertaining themselves easily. Children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions. Maybe you've... um, You've seen kids, maybe their mom's taken to the store and their moms are shopping. And then you find two or three kids that are playing under the clothes and doing this and that. They're just, you know, all over, you know. And the mom keeps saying, Johnny, if you do it one more time, I'm going to smack you. It's been 99 times. Johnny knows he has 150 times before he gets smacked. He's been trained very well to disobey. Verse 17, the character of the people is confirmed by their words. There has to be evidence about it. Jesus provides it. And saying, we play the flute to you. You did not dance. We mourn. You did not lament. Jesus here describes them as playing wedding first. It may believe they're playing this flute, but someone says, no, I don't want to dance. See, they don't, don't want to listen. They don't want to play. They just want to do whatever they want. Like immature, self-centered children. Distracted easily. They were like fickle children, rude and whining. That happens because you look to yourself. That's the human perspective. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. Jesus noticed, described them as playing funeral also. Two little games that they play in the marketplace. We mourn to you. You didn't lament. They were bored easily. Changed their mind quickly. Nothing seems to hold their attention very long. Nothing satisfies them. You see, there's always something new. The Bible says that there's a void in man's heart, and we try to fill it with whatever it may be. You fill in the blank. And as soon as you get that, they'll last you for a little while, but then there's got to be something else whether it be a car, whether it be a profession, whether it be a guy, whether it be a girl, whatever. Whether getting drunk, getting loaded, whatever. Always something else. The application 
of the little parable then is presented to the generation in verse 18 and 19. Notice in 18, the people first had rejected John the Baptist. That's the backdrop of this context. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Jesus said, John came as a Nazareth from the Old Testament. He um, was ascetic. He didn't eat certain things. He didn't drink certain things and wine and certain grapes and things that ferment. The conclusion of the people was that John has a demon. Now, they, they also said that about Jesus. So there's a lot of things that people say about Jesus and the Bible and everything else. It doesn't make it true. There are things in the Bible, that are, they are accurate records of what is stated. But what is stated is not true. It's just an accurate record of what is true. Like this right here. Okay? So the context is very important as you examine the Bible. They were consistent in their unbelief in the proclamation of the word they were hearing. Easily distracted. Not given to believe what they hear. They were an authority in themselves. If we live in a generation of authority to ourselves, it is this generation. You see, when you have an absolute standard of morals and ethics, right and wrong, it's pretty clear, very easy. You know when I do wrong? You know when somebody else does wrong. But when you make everything gray, as our present generation has embraced this subjective um, relative society, then all the black and whites have been made gray. There are no absolutes. You're the judge of your own standard. It's an extension of existentialism. Some of you may be taking that in college, philosophy, logic, and all of that. And so the existential philosophy means that you only have an experience and your experience is true and you can judge that experience and no one can judge it for you. Because no one can experience the same truth that you can. Therefore, no one has the right to judge that truth. Right? Sounds so smart. Stupid. Absolutely stupid. You can walk around saying, you know, I, I, I've got a, a new measure. You know, a yard is 26 inches. But try to make a living when it's 36 inches. Build houses. Let's see what happens. You go broke real fast. But when you are... In a society that makes their own rules, there's no order. All there is is confusion and destruction. This is the generation that he's talking to. It seems fun at first, but it gets heavy at the end, along your journey. Jesus is trying to open their eyes. And it's almost the harder he tries, the more they close their eyes. Spiritually and physically. People secondly rejected Jesus. Look at verse 19. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say look. A glutton and a wine bibber. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. So here again. You have John who's an ascetic. And they criticize him. They have their objections. Now, Jesus, on the other side, sits down and eats with them and drinks with them, normal. And, you know, they say, well, you know, he hangs out with 
tax collectors, sinners. He came as a normal man. So really nothing would satisfy them. Because the minute you present a new thing, they say, well, but this is wrong. But he says this, he says that. Once again, Jesus reveals their fickle hearts. The way you think comes from your heart. From your heart comes evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, and everything else, as well as my life. It's in your heart. Guard your heart, for out of it comes the issues of life, Proverbs says, 4.23. The heart is who you really are. Not who you think you are, not who people think you are, but who you are. Now, every one of you young ladies got up this morning and you looked at your mirror. Because you know one thing about your mirror, ladies. It doesn't lie. You have never called your mirror a liar. And when you got all fixed up, then you went in the car, the first thing you did is you looked at the mirror and you looked at yourself. You checked yourself. Because you can depend on your mirror. It tells you the truth. The Bible's the same way. Except we don't like what the Bible reveals about us. We say, no, 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 that's not true. I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know that's just your opinion. Okay. But you don't say that to man, you say that to God. Because the Bible is the Word of God. And He's trying to show you and myself how far we are away from God and how rebellious we are at heart. And that if we don't pay heed, we will end up destroying our lives. And if we continue so, we will die in our sin and perish for all eternity. Ezekiel says, God speaking through him, Repent, turn, turn, turn. Why would you perish? I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Hell is real. As real as you're sitting here. So is heaven. The minute every person gives up their last breath, they go to one place or the other. No second chance. If you feel that God is unjust, if you feel that you don't like the rules, you can take it up with them after you give your last breath. Won't help you at all. Everybody has a big mouth down here. No one has a big mouth after death. Not one person. This generation lives in their own little studio. Their own little reality shows. Everybody's a star. It's evidence that people are so empty and so full of themselves. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing at all. And yet, as the word goes forth, even as Jesus here really brings a very severe judgment upon them, because he's doing everything that he can to turn them. And as he speaks in parables, he does it to open their eyes. And the blindness that comes upon them becomes greater. Not because Jesus is making them blind or confusing them, but because they keep rejecting 
the greater light. And when you reject the greater light, you receive greater darkness once you reject it. No, light's good. If I'm, I'm going this way and the light's behind me, shining me, and it's dark out there, I can see. But you turn that light around and it hits me in the eyes, now I'm blind. And that's exactly what happened when people reject gospel of Jesus Christ over and over again because of the hardness of their heart. You ever hear about Pharaoh? He hardened his own heart. Hardened his own heart. Hardened his own heart. Finally, God said, I respect your choice. You want nothing to do with me. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to harden your heart in a strong way so that you can have your way. Whoa. God didn't do it. God respected his choice. God will respect your choice whether you accept Christ or you reject Christ. God will not be the loser. You will. It's not for 10 years, it's not for 100 years, it's for all eternity. That's what's at stake. A glutton and a wine bibber. In other words, it doesn't make any difference who it is. They're going to find fault. They want to live for themselves. They live in unbelief. The greatest sin is the sin of unbelief. Because God has gone out of his way to give us so much evidence. He sent his own son to die for you and I. He tasted death for us. We deserve to be on that cross. Yet he crucified his only son to make the payment for sin. When they crucified Jesus Christ, it was the most unjust act that has ever happened on the face of this earth. Because he was sinless. He did not deserve to be condemned. But he chose to be condemned as a substitute for each and every one of us. That we might have access to the Father. Here comes the punchline. Verse 20 to 24, the severe judgment Jesus declares to the unrepentant cities that he's been preaching. The judgment over certain cities in 20 and 21, Jesus rebukes the cities that had the greater privilege. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of the mighty works had been done because they did not, here's it is, repent. Most of the mighty works were done. Didn't repent. Many people say, well, you know, we have miracles, more people be saved. People don't get saved by miracles. They get saved by hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. There was a whole movement, a vineyard movement, years back. Probably 20, 25 years back. They used to teach it up here at Fuller Seminary. Power evangelism. You go out and do miracles. People get saved. Well, show me, show me scripturally. Never find it in the Bible. People get saved by hearing the word of God. Not by miracles. You see a miracle, well, if that was really, you'd do another one. The heart of man, unbelief. Three quarters of the ministry of Jesus was accomplished in the Galilee. Three quarters. To those, so much is given, much more is required. Luke twelve forty eight says. And so the response should have been, repentance seeing their lostness their need of salvation but they did not some of you perhaps have been warned by 
your parents or friends or even teachers or people that care for you, the way you've lived your life or the way you're going. And they do it because they love you and they're hoping that you get the message and turn around. But if you don't, then you keep reaping to what you're sowing. And though you may justify yourself or blame others, the person who's responsible for your life is you. Your decision. Everything you ever do is your decision. If someone forces you something, that's different. But that rarely happens. Notice Jesus specifically names the cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done and you had been done in Tyre and Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. The outward evidence of contrition, of repentance, afflicting themselves. Woe is always judgment. He's not on a horse. It's judgment throughout the scriptures. The city creation, two miles north of Capernaum. This is the only mention of it here in Matthew. The city of Bethsaida, believed to be in the close region. Peter, Andrew, and Philip were from Bethsaida, we are told. And then Jesus addresses Tyre and Sidon, two of the most wicked cities. If they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, if the very same evidence had been and miracles had been done in them, they would have repented. That's quite a charge. Now, you have to either accuse Jesus of embellishing or lying. Remember who's speaking here, okay? Because these cities are bad. They are wicked. Tyre was famous seaport in the ancient world, about 20 miles south of Sidon. The island's about three-quarter miles from the mainland. And Sidon was a Phoenician city, 20 miles north of Tyre. But they were evil cities. And the judgment of Chorazin, he moves to, and Bethsaida, would be more severe. So he compares the cities that he's preached to, the measure of light that he's given. He presents these wicked cities and the measure of light they receive. And in verse 22, the ultimate authority is, but I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than the days of judgment. Tolerable means bearable for those two wicked cities. They will be able to bear their judgment much easier than you who have had the greater privilege. I don't know how many times you've heard the gospel. But every time you hear the gospel and reject it, your heart gets harder. The judgment becomes greater. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to make you make a decision based on fear. I'm just telling you the truth. You have to take it into your mind and evaluate it. Is it worth it? The warning from God is because he loves you. Notice the judgment over the city of Capernaum in 23. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted into heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Wow. Exalted by the privilege of what they received. The miracles. The love. The preaching. It's like your parents giving you a bed, car, education, clothes, 
and you're still demanding things and not appreciating. Oh, those guys, I don't want those, I want the other shoes. Being unappreciative, right? Same thing here. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus Christ. Great privilege. Capernaum would be brought down to the lowest places, Hades, as hell. The Greek word in the uh, New Testament and the Old Testament is Sheol. And there's a place of departed spirits, two full compartments. The side is a place of comfort, paradise. This place is a place of torment. Once you die, you go to one place or the other. We never knew they had two compartments until so Jesus told us in Luke 16. In the Old Testament, it's just the grave or the place of departed spirits, hate, uh, shield. But Jesus told us that it was two compartments. When Jesus descended to the lowest parts, he scooped up those who died in faith and took them to heaven. So now there's only one compartment. Those people that die without Jesus Christ, the minute they die, they go to hell. Commonly what we call hell and Hades. Those who are born again, they're instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Only two places. It's like driving on the street. It's a two-way street. One is coming, the other one's going. Two lanes. Two choices. Notice the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Pretty bad. In fact, we're going to, in our series of what about, we're going to do what about Sodom and Gomorrah this next Thursday. Because so many people don't believe about Sodom and Gomorrah or they try to twist it. Especially with the uh, liberals of the homosexual community who try to say the Bible doesn't teach against homosexuality. Really? Is the sky blue or brown? Of course it teaches against it. Absolutely. Can two men have a baby? Can two women have a baby? Then it's not natural. It, it goes against natural law. Simple. In fact, that type of relationship is very costly. Physically. Very, very costly. Every way around. It goes against nature. And so the authority again is the highest, Jesus Christ. The judgment over Sodom would not be as severe. And they were pretty bad. Why? Because of sin of unbelief. People will go to hell not because they fornicate, not because they commit adultery, not because they steal, not because they lie. Those are sins they commit, but they will go to hell because of unbelief. They do not believe that God sent the Son and made Him sin for them to die in their place to make the payment for their sins that if they believe in Him, they will have eternal life. The sin of unbelief. That's really your decision tonight. Whether you believe what the Bible says about you and about what Jesus did for you. And whether you believe He can forgive you of all your sins and make a new creation of you. You either believe or you disbelieve. But the choice is yours. I pray that you take heed to these warnings. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking with a broken heart. But he's speaking truth. Warning of the ultimate destruction and judgment of people if they don't repent. Father, we thank you for your grace, your loving goodness. We love you. We thank you. 
And pray, Lord, for every person that your hand be upon them, Lord, and that, Lord, you would minister to their heart if they don't know you. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would just um, have them to call in your name. And, Lord, they would agree with you as to their condition spiritually and your grace and your love for them, Lord. As you're praying, if, um, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're here tonight. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. Once again, consider the authority. Nicodemus said, well, how can I be born again? Can I go back into my mother's womb second time? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. Born again means that you believe what God says about you. You're a sinner. You're lost. You're dead in trespasses and sins. And he is holy. And he paid the price for your sin. And if you call upon him and trust him for your justification, he will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will make you his son or daughter by grace through faith. If this is your decision, right where you sit, this is between you and God, no one else. If you believe what I've said, reading the word of God, and if you want to repent of your sins, this is your prayer of repentance to the Lord. And right where you sit, he's going to make you brand new. He's going to cleanse you whiter than snow. And after that, before you leave, to my right is going to be this door. There's going to be a man there to give you a Bible absolutely free. And make sure you understood what you've done. And you're free to leave. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.